Petrash, your host for On Parenting. And this is our back to school show, and we're going to be talking about education tonight with Joan Allman. When I think of education, I'm always struck by how children have always been compared with plants. And we look at teachers and we see them as um, educators who turn the soil of a child's understanding, who sow seeds of future knowledge. And we've called our first schools kindergartens and nurseries, and we just sense that there is an innate, an innate connection between children and plants. But when I look out and see what's going on, I look across the street at my neighbor, and every year he gets this lawn service that comes in, and it fertilizes his lawn. And every April it is all pumped up and green. And then by the middle of summer, his grass looks weak and tired and sort of stretched out. And I'm wondering if this isn't how we're educating our children now that we've brought academic education into the kindergarten. We are just pumping our children up with early understanding, but at what cost? I start wondering whether we're educating our children the way we farm in this country, where we just use up a valuable resource uh, before we realize it, and that valuable resource in education is childhood. I want to read a quote from Henry David Thoreau, one which I think is pertinent to this discussion tonight. And here's what Thoreau said. I'm struck by the fact that the more slowly tree gro trees grow at first, the sounder they are at the core. And I think the same is true with human beings. We do not wish to see children precocious making great strides in the early years, like sprouts producing soft and perishable timber. But better they expand slowly at first, as if contending with difficulties, and so are solidified and perfected. Such trees expand with equal rapidity into extreme old age. And I think we can keep Thoreau's remarks in mind because they apply to education today as we take a look at the effects of No Child Left Behind and this early emphasis on academics in the preschool when we invite our guest to join us, Joan Allman. Joan has been an educator for over 35 years. She began her work um, back in New York City in the anti-poverty movement. She is now the chair of the Alliance for Childhood here in America. The Alliance for Childhood is an advocacy group for children. They put out two reports on the healthy use of technology, and now they've been working on the beneficial aspects of creative play. And I want to welcome Joan. Thanks, Jack. It's great to be here with you. Uh, Joan, it's so nice to look over and see you. Joan, how are we doing in education today? I would not give us a very high grade, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, you know, we are expecting so much so soon, speaking now of the younger children, the preschool and the kindergarten mm -hmm. children. We just want them, like your image of your neighbor, you know, we kind of pumping them full of the equivalent of nitrogen and just expecting a lot of growth, but it's not a sustainable growth. So you do see that the children are learning a lot of things at this young age. And the test scores are good in first, second grade. And then things start to peter off for the children. And I have heard from so many teachers over the years about the burnout that they see in children in third, fourth grade, that they just don't have the sustainable learning that we all want for our children. And I think that if we could just slow it down a little bit, make it rich, full, give them what they need, absolutely, but slow it down a little bit and give them a chance to develop all of their capacities, not just respond to a one-sided education, which unfortunately is what they're largely getting at the moment. 
in the early years. Now, Joan, in your work with the Alliance for Childhood, you have contact with kindergarten teachers, preschool teachers all over the country. And from what you're hearing from the kindergarten teachers, um, what are the goals that are currently held in our preschools? Well, different states have different standards, but Mm -hmm. it's come down to a question of standards. And um, very often the standards, for instance, in kindergarten are that the children should have mastered the alphabet, that they should have basics of reading under their belt now. And yet when you look at it from a developmental perspective, what people like Bank Street College, for instance, will say is in the kindergarten and preschool, you should think of children as being emerging readers, not yet actually readers. And an emerging reader sort of knows the alphabet. They know the alphabet means something, and they know most of the letters, um, but maybe they don't know all the letters. And they'll recognize a word one day, and then another day they may not recognize it. You know, they're just not quite there yet in a consistent way, day in, day out, with you on the alphabet, on reading, and so on. But in most of our schools today, we expect kindergarten children and even preschool children to be absolutely with it, with these things. And they get tested regularly, and they come up with a sense of failure often already in kindergarten if they can't do the things that are expected. And yet so much of what's expected is not in alignment with what is the normal stage of development. Mm -hmm. We pretty much have brought the first grade expectations down into the kindergarten, and it's even trickling into the preschool. Uh, That's been my sense, Joan. Joan, I was just wondering, what are the side effects that we're seeing with children who are in a situation where they're placed under this pressure? Well, a very dramatic um, study came out of Yale University a couple years ago where they were looking at expulsion rates. And for some reason, they started with four-year-olds, which I wouldn't have thought to have done. But they looked from four to age 18. What age do you see the highest rates of expulsion? And what was shocking about their results were that the highest rates of expulsion were among four-year-olds in preschool. And among those children that were being expelled from preschool, four and a half times as many boys as girls were being expelled. So you, you get this feeling that we've created a preschool education that is divorced from the reality of children, especially of boys, who need a lot of activity and a lot of hands on engagement in life. But we're asking children to sit still for longer and longer periods um, of time and absorb things and then be tested on those things, and they are frustrated. So we see expulsion taking place. We see um, children, for instance, in kindergartens in Texas, there's been a study of children being pulled out of school and being sent to these special schools for children who can't manage in a normal school. I don't mean because they have a learning disability now, but because they're just not, um, usually it's a behavioral issue. Mm-hmm. And they know that, the, that if you go to these particular special schools, you have a much higher rate of going to jail later. So, and the law even says that children under six cannot be sent to these schools, but they're being sent anyway. Because teachers are saying the behavior is impossible. We hear a lot about kindergarten rage. But why is the behavior impossible? Very often it's because the program is impossible for the child, and they're just so frustrated. And a lot of of psychologists and teachers are also saying the stress levels that they're seeing among children are much higher now than previously. And they attribute one of the reasons being what's being asked of them in school. 
We're speaking with Joan Allman. This is WPFW 89.3 on Parenting. And we invite our listeners to call in with your questions. Our number here is 202-588-0893. Now, Joan, um, just I'm thinking back to the brain research that I've seen, and it talks about the the adverse effects of early learning, that young children before a certain age when they're asked to do academic work, that the myelination that should be taking place in their nervous system doesn't occur early enough for them to solidify this knowledge. Is that what we're seeing with children when they're uh, developmentally emergent learners, emergent readers? I think so, and I keep wishing that people would do more about myelination in relationship to early learning because I think it's an important connection. What it means is that Children's nerves naturally get coated with a coating called myelin that helps transmit complex information. Without the myelin, the nerves can can transmit simple information, but not complex. Well, that myelination process is, is slower than what we're trying to put into the children today. So we're asking them to deal with very complex messages before the nervous system has developed enough to be able to handle it. There used to be a recognition that there was a change between kindergarten and first grade, and that there were a lot of things you sort of reserved for first grade, and you let kindergarten be much more hands-on experiential learning. But nowadays, the more cognitive learning of the first grade is what dominates the kindergarten, and I think it puts an, an enormous strain on the children's nervous system. They're just not ready for it yet. We're going to go to our first caller. Uh, Ronald, you're on. Yes. Yeah. I'm on my cell phone. I'm going in trying to hope it stays on. But Me too. I'm just glad you guys um, are focusing on this topic. Actually, I know that I know that we have kind of noticed that within I say last five years, and really especially kind of targeted at black males. Um, the way the educational system is, they they ask these boys to sit down, be quiet, listen to what I'm telling you receive the information, and give it back to me when I ask you to. And then we're grading these these boys on how well they're able to regurgitate the information. And that's not really true learning or true teaching. And a lot of the teachers are so um, rigid that they don't want to cater their style of teaching to the student. It's almost like cookie cutter. Everybody comes in this class, learns this way, and, and, and teachers kind of you know, and as a parent, you come in and you don't want to insult the teacher because you understand the teacher is going through That's so right. many years of training. But you're telling them, listen, my child does not learn like that. And my child, not, and not only does he not learn like that, but he's not a behavioral problem. You guys asking him to sit here and just listen. I mean, teacher, if you just kind of change your style of teaching and just try to maybe include this guy or get him, sorry, guy include this child in more of a, uh, I guess, hands-on That's right. uh, learning style, I'm sure my child would do better. Well, He's well Joan's here. He's bored and so forth. Well, I'm Joan's here. And no, you're great. And Joan's here. She's just nodding in agreement, so I'm going to let her speak. And one more th- I'm sorry. One, it's a guy named Kawanza Kanjufu. We have been use, using his, um, his uh, teaching methods. I, I know he has a uh, one or two, three, four series of books. One of them is um, Destroying the Black Male. I can't quite remember the book, and I don't want to sabotage the name, but the author's name is Kawaza Kajufu, and he does a lot of study in that field. Well, and thank- I'll back out. Well, thank you, Ron. Thank you for your call. Ronald, that was really eloquent. Thank you so much. 
I'd like to um, maybe make two points in response. One is a little story from a friend of mine who was a very good teacher, but she was um, at home for some years raising her own child, and she did volunteer work in a first grade. And the teacher asked her to work with the slow readers. So she had a little circle of children sitting in chairs. And one little boy wanted to get up with his book and just walk around the circle while they were working together. And she let him. He didn't disturb anyone, and he was focused. And afterwards, the teacher said to read, now, you, you have to keep him in his chair. He's not allowed to get up and walk around like that. But my friend is pretty independent-minded, and she let the little boy do the same thing the next week. And by the third week, the child was reading. He needed to move while he was learning to read. You know, he had the book in his hand. He was concentrated. He, didn't, he could, just couldn't sit in a chair all day. It was too much for him. And I think it's too much for a lot of our children, and especially our boys. And it, it concerns me a lot. Well, you know, that's the situation here in the district where we have our day treatment centers where the children who are no longer able to be in a uh, mainstream classroom are sent. And in those day treatment centers, 80 to 90 percent of the children are, are boys. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, I always am struck by the expression that you, you know, use that the boys are the canaries in the minefield. Yeah. When the education doesn't work, they're the ones who show us first. That's right. And it's not working for the girls, too, but they tend to internalize the problems more, and the boys tend to act it out more. And so the boys misbehave, and it's very obvious that they're misbehaving, and then they get themselves into a lot of trouble. But it doesn't work for any of the children, ultimately. Yeah. It, it's, not the, it's not really the food they need for sustainable growth and learning. We're speaking with Joan Allman. Uh, from the Alliance from Childhood here on WPFW, and we invite your calls at 202-588-0893. Now, Joan, one of the questions I wanted to ask you are, what are the reasonable goals for children in a preschool program, in a kindergarten program? What should we be doing? Well, I think we need to find a good balance of um, giving children a chance for child-initiated play, that is, with simple materials that they can create the worlds that they are living with and make their own. Um, Lots of hands-on activities because children need to develop their dexterity and they're very creative and you give them simple materials and they make all kinds of things with them. But also the role of the teacher is very important and yet it's a bit subtle because if the teacher does too much teaching in these years, the children tend to get turned off. If the teacher is expanding on what the children are interested in or bringing in new things out of her own interests, the, ch- the children respond really well. And especially if the teacher is doing real work in front of young children, whether it's gardening or cooking or woodworking, children love it. Uh, every parent knows this. If you're in the kitchen cooking, your young child wants to be under your feet playing around you. They love the energy of adults doing real work, and it stimulates them to explore the world much more fully. So if teachers would teach a little less and do a little more and let the children do more in these years, the nursery, kindergarten years, the children tend to become very active learners and very interested in the world around them. So now what I'm understanding you to be saying is that exploratory learning should be a goal in every preschool. I think so, and also in kindergartens. This is the way that young children primarily learn, is by self-exploration and discovery and and very much through play. Play is their medium for making the world their own and just exploring the world. Now, Joan, what about the social learning that should go on in the preschool? 
Well, that happens very much in these ways. You know, when children are playing, for instance, they're generally playing with other children, and they're in constant social negotiation and working things out with other children. And one of the tragedies of our time is that children aren't playing that way anymore, and they're not developing social skills that they need. And we see that later in the workplace when employers are complaining that the young people they're hiring don't know how to work with other people. They're not used to the give and take of the real world. And where children learn that is in in play. In kindergarten, it reminds yeah. me of that book. What was the title? Everything, right. everything you, I learned. I everything I needed to learn. I learned in kindergarten. Something like that. Yeah. Yep. Well, we're listening to Joan Allman here tonight on on parenting, and our number is two zero two five eight eight zero eight nine three. And we're going to go to the phones. Hello. Hello. Yes. Hello. How are you? <laughs> Fine. Thank you. Good. Are you ready to take my comment? Absolutely. Okay, um, my name is Miss M, and I'm an early childhood development teacher. I believe that children should be taught from where they are developmentally. I think what's more important than the cognitive development, again, is the social interaction. The cognitive part will come in the school age years. Um, children need to know that um, learning should be fun. They are interested in learning, but if you're so rigid in the um, way you're teaching the children, again, as the other caller said, children will be turned off. They think that if they don't consider it as play, it becomes work. And I think what we should do is go back to the um, teaching styles of the past, teach children from where they are, and they indeed will all be at the same place when they're, when they're ready for school. Thank you, Miss Thank you. Now, that has certainly been my experience, and what I've seen in, in dozens of classrooms is that if you respect the child and you assess where are the children that I'm serving and then help them in their growth processes, they learn so much. I mean, children are so geared to learning. They want to learn, only we tend to turn them off in the process of you know, of too much teaching at too young an age instead of supporting them as learners at a young age. If you just think about how a young child learns language, for instance, um, I think it's a great example of how learning takes place. The one-year-old, two-year-old, they have this enormous inner drive to learn language. They're just, you know, picking up new words every day. No one has to tell them to learn language or teach them to learn language. But if there's no people around that are speaking, they're not going to learn language. So they have this tremendous inner urge to speak and, and master language, but they also need the presence of other people, children and adults. Not because those people have to teach them, but because those people have to practice the use of language in front of them. And that's often all that young children need because they come equipped with this enormous urge for learning. Now, Joan, most of us, um, as educators, we were in the preschool before the push of No Child Left Behind and before the response to the nation at risk. And so we know a different preschool experience. We know a preschool with uh, a little play corner where you have blocks and then you have a sink and a refrigerator and you could play house and a table. Um, my understanding is that the preschools aren't like that anymore. Would you speak a little bit about the preschools that you're hearing about and how the day is structured? 
I think you find a lot of variation in preschools where you don't find as much variation is now in, in kind kindergartens. Mm -hmm. So I think I'd like to speak more about this from a kindergarten angle. Thank you. Also because in the Alliance we've just um, we had commissioned three studies done by university researchers on what's happening in kindergartens today and we're just writing up the report on that. But basically what we found is that in New York and Los Angeles where the studies were done there's all-day kindergartens and teachers roughly are spending two to three hours a day um, pretty intensively working on teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, and also preparing children for taking tests. And they're spending less than half an hour a day on any kind of play activities or free choice activities. So whereas when I first knew kindergarten work in the early 70s, there would be a little bit of introduction of alphabet and so on, but mainly it was experiential. Uh, activity for children and now the balance is completely shifted and it's hard to know to say exactly well it should be this much time or that much time but definitely we need a different balance than what we have right now we're speaking with Joan Allman director chair of the Alliance for Childhood here at WPFW and our number is 202-588-0893 now Joan I'm wondering about the children that we're seeing in the preschool and the stress levels that, that are there. What would we do to help children with stress, to relieve stress in a preschool, in a kindergarten setting? Well, the irony is that one of the best ways to relieve stress in children is to let them really play. And there's been research on this of children that are put into a stressful situation. Then one group is allowed to play, one group is not. The group that plays, the stress levels go down. So we're in this bind where we're adding more stress to children's lives and we're taking away play, which is their major way of dealing with stress. So we're leaving them with an awful lot of stress. So to begin with, I would honor play again in children, respect that children have a deep urge to play and help bring that forward in their lives, encourage them to play. And then usually they will work through whatever the problem is. I think of a little girl, for instance, in my class who was a, quite a good player and one Monday morning, her mother pulled me aside and said that a family friend had died of a heart attack. And the family little girl were very upset about it. And I was glad I knew that because the little girl goes up to her friends and says, let's pretend that I'm dead and you're going to help me. And for three days, they played that she was dead. And they did all kinds of things. They laid her out on a board. They carried her around the room. And they put flowers around her and so on. And then finally, on the third day, I, they invited me to come and visit her. And I brought some, it was right before Easter, I brought some little Easter eggs. And when she saw them out of her little you know, eyes slightly open, she sits up and she says, I'm alive again. I'm alive again. And then got up and started to play other things. And I felt that in those play hours she had had and working on that, she had really worked through something about what is death? What does it feel like? And isn't it great? We can be alive again. How wonderful that children can process these, these, under, these experiences and come to understandings through play. Yeah. And that's what I see whenever I visit a kindergarten. I see the children playing about the events in their world. It's an enormous gift that every child is given, and it's really a tragedy that we're taking that gift away from them. We're speaking with Joan Allman here on On Parenting, and we have another call. Uh, hi, this is Theodore. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Theodore. Thanks for calling. Um, I was just wondering if I could hear uh, either of your opinions on if you think in uh, 
now we have more kids that have, say, ADD, more problems like that. And if you think that's due to the um, way children are being taught. Thank you, Theodore. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that we see a lot more children now with, with problems, mental health problems, learning disabilities. I don't want to put everything on the back of the way we're teaching children because I think it's these are complex issues and there's usually a number of factors. But I, I myself th- think quite strongly that the way we're teaching children is contributing to the problems that we're seeing. The kinds of things that Ronald was talking about before with boys, for instance, if you frustrate these boys enough in school you're going to see some pretty bad behaviors. And some of it is just hyper, you know, they're too wound up. They need time to get outside, to run around, to play, to be active in the classroom. And then we start to call what we see hyperactive disorder. It may or may not be. Some children do have it as a nervous disorder, but I think a lot of children have it in what I call an environmentally imposed problem. That is something that we're doing in the home or the school is creating the problem for the child. They don't innately have the problem. And then we give them drugs and things, and pretty soon they do have real problems. But I think a lot of it are things that we've created and that we can change, and we need to change. Right. I want to thank you for the call, Theodore. We're going to go a lot of another call here. We've created and that we can change, and we need to change. Right. I want to thank you for the call, Theodore. Are you there, Guy? Yes, I am. All right, thank you. Go ahead. Are you there, Guy? Yes, I am. All righty. Please go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to Okay. Respond. Oh, Guy, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. Could you turn your radio off? Off. Yeah, it is off. or down. Okay. okay. All right. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to respond to the comment about stress release and my own upbringing and training as a teacher. Uh-huh. When I came through college, I'm pretty sure pianos were standard issue in kindergarten classrooms. Yep, that's true. Not, so not only have we gotten away from that, but we've also gotten away from the music curricula and art curricula. And I think when you um, look at stress relief, and the absence of, of artistic expression in the classroom, no matter what level it's on, it's a, it's a very important factor that um, we as a society should be responding to. I couldn't agree with yeah. you more, Guy. Thank you for your call. Thank you. Thank you. I totally agree with that also, Guy. I'm so glad that you made that point because children do need art and they need music. They also need time outdoors. Outdoors is a wonderful stress reliever for children. And there's some interesting research on that, also in relationship to hyperactive disorders, that children who are more exposed to the outdoors tend to have less problems of that nature. And um, there's just so many good things like that that we're really depriving children of today. And we've given them a very lopsided approach to education by eliminating things that are so helpful and necessary for their growth and development. And eliminating them to make room for a greater emphasis on academics in the the kindergarten. And this is what the teachers say under No Child Left Behind, that they don't have a choice. They have to do these things in order to get the test scores up where they're supposed to be. All right. Well, we're going to have another caller. Hi, are you there, Julie? Yes, I am. Oh, good. 
Yeah, hi. I hi. wanted to kind of go on um, in the same vein, having to do with play and as a stress relief and also just as a really necessary part of the day and how that's being impacted by what the kids are required to do in my daughter's school and I think in, in general, when children don't finish their homework or their work, they're made to stay in from recess. And uh, as well, they're also, when they act up and misbehave, the punishment is that they are deprived of recess. And that seems just so counterproductive because, of course, it makes them more stressed and more pent up as far as their energy. And uh, I just wondered if you have any suggestion. I've talked to my, my daughter's school about this, but it still seems to go on. And do you have any suggestions about how to broach this to the school and maybe is there a study or is there anything being done so that to show the school that this is not a good idea and they've got to have a different way of dealing with with you know children maybe thank uh, you julie you know, not doing their work julie you're right on with this and there's a website i'd like to tell you about from the international play association it's called ipa usa and they've taken um, this as a real issue of guaranteeing children the right to have recess. And they've got things on their website, and there's been a number of campaigns in different states. Some states now have really written into law that the children have to have recess because it's been a tendency over the last 10 years or so to eliminate recess. Yeah. The city of Atlanta eliminated it for That's about 10 years. Yep. They've brought it back in now. But during those years, they were building schools that didn't have playgrounds, from what I understand, because why build a playground if you don't have recess? So it's, you know, and then there are schools that have it, but where the teachers use it as a punishment tool. Children need recess. They need breaks. We would never ask an employee, an employee to work at their desk for as long as we now ask children to work at their desks. It's so unhealthy for them. So do fight the good fight, but you'll find research and other things on that website. Could you I, say that website again? Yeah, it's ipausa.org. Thank you, Joan. We're speaking with Joan Allman on On Parenting. We're going to take a short break here, and we're going to come back with Joan, and we're going to come to our phones. And So don't forget to call in 202-588-0893. As the saying goes, all politics are local. Beginning in September, during the last five business days of each month, WPFW will initiate Last Week Local, broadening our commitment to addressing the concerns important to you and your community via our public affairs and news programming. During Last Week Local, many of our fine programs will devote their time to discuss local stories, events, and people. September's Last Week Local programming will occur Wednesday, September 24th through Tuesday, September 30th. If you have a local concern or issue that you feel we should address, please email it to minot underscore gloria at wpfw.org. That's M-I-N-O-T-T underscore G-L-O-R-I-A at wpfw.org. Please include Last Week Local in your email subject line and include contact information for any group or person that could assist us in better addressing your local public affairs or news idea. 
Again, that's Last Week Local, Wednesday, September 24th through Tuesday, September 30th on WPFW, your station for jazz and justice radio, serving the collective needs and imagination of the community. Welcome back. This is Jack Petrash and on Parenting, and our guest tonight is Joan Allman from the Alliance for Childhood, and we are talking about education and specifically early childhood education and the emphasis on academics. And we're going to go to the phone to our caller. Betty, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for Um, waiting. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I was trained to be a kindergarten teacher. I have my master's in um, kindergarten primary, and I taught kindergartens in the 1960s and 70s, and kindergarten means a child's garden, and that's just what it should be, a child's garden, and we had fun, and lots of noise, and the children did finger painting, and painted at the easels, and the boys played with the blocks, and they dropped them, and it was a noisy, messy time, and we all had fun, and they all moved around, they could sit anywhere, and when I would read them a story... During this, the story time, they would get up and I would have finger plays or they would march around and play rhythm instruments. And I had all this planned. Like every 10 minutes was planned and took a lot of work on my part. But we all had fun and they had fun. And it's so different now. I have friends teaching kindergarten and the children have special places to sit. There's no more dollhouse. And the children love the dollhouse playing. They push the baby carriage and dress the dolls. And um, they had the cash register and the, and the canned goods. And um, it was so much fun to see the little boys dress the dolls and push them in the baby carriage. They were preparing them to be fathers and, um, you know, who would be marry who one day and marry somebody else another day. And it was, it was, um, it was just fun. And, and I think it's all wrong now when they have to sit and learn what, what they're supposed to learn in first grade. I also taught first grade, second grade during the 70s and 80s, and that was first grade. They had desks, and um, you know, they, they learned colors and color words, and, and then um, the, uh, the, the easy words in their primers. And um, it, I just, I, how come it changed? Yeah, no, I haven't heard anyone say anything about why did this all change? That's a great so question. Yeah. Thank you so much, Betty. Joan, can you speak to that question? Yes, some, somewhat. It's, um, it's always a mystery to me, frankly, how these changes came. I mean, there are certain threads that one can follow. Actually, many people trace it back to Sputnik. America was shocked that the Russians had gotten ahead of us, and Admiral Rickover went around talking about how the Russians had gotten ahead of us because they started teaching their children math so early. Well, actually, they didn't. Their children stayed in kindergarten until age seven. And when I visited in late 70s in Russia, they were very play-oriented kindergartens. But, um, you know, people got on a bandwagon where they felt, we've got to start children younger. Somehow we're slipping behind. And that got more and more accelerated in the 90s, and then especially under No Child Left Behind. There's this fear that if we don't push the children when they're young, we're going to be really... You know, we're, we're disabling them. We're not giving them something they need. There certainly are things they need. I'm not in favor of ignoring young children. 
they, they need opportunities to learn, and they need good teachers to help in the way that Betty was describing. Um, but they need it in their own way, not in the way that a seven or eight or nine-year-old needs it. Education for young children is different. And if you give them a chance to learn, if you work with the grain of the child, they will learn so much. One is just amazed at how much they learn. Yeah. But we're basically going against the grain now, and it's not working for and, them. And we can't ignore the pressure that No Child Left Behind has placed on principals, because that pressure then is passed on to the teachers, and that's what's altered the programs, because yeah. the testing has become such a dominant force in the schools. And how much time is spent in preschools, with in our preschool kindergartens, with testing? Because well, all those tests are in, in, uh, given individually, and they right. just take hours, hours. I've heard kindergarten teachers say that it'll take an entire month to test the class, and the months leading up to that are preparing the children for the okay. tests. And so there are a variety of factors that have, that have brought this change, but No Child Left Behind can go unmentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to go to a next caller. Kathy, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, how Hi. are you? Well, uh, thank, thank you, you so much for this show. I've, this has kind of been my soapbox lately. Um, I work with kids. I'm a uh, pediatric occupational therapist, and um, I do work with kids with learning disabilities, but I've also worked with kids who go to um, regular schools, and I've seen the stress on them. Many, Some of them do have some delays, but others um, are, have just been pushed to do things that they're not ready to do. Um, their eye move, a lot of the skills that I see that, you know, really come together for the complex task of reading and writing are their eye movement skills, um, their sense of their self in space, which they, they can then relate to the orientation of the letters and spacing, their hand control, um, their, you know, just their ability to sit still, obviously, because they need to move to get to, to really develop that sense of their body and, and, and all those skills and their muscles and, and um, you know, also with not getting as much time outside, they don't get as much. Um, but it, it's just, it's just really a shame and I, I don't think it's, um, I don't, I don't think that, I just think that we're, we're too sophisticated, um, we have too, so much knowledge, it's just, there's no reason for it, really. And, and we replace common sense with knowledge sometimes. Uh, yeah. Kathy, thank you for your call. Joan, would you like to respond? Yeah, I, I appreciate very much the work that you're doing and the way that you're approaching this. Um, I also think that, you know, when if I can go back to the former caller just for a moment and link to that, when she said, why have we gotten away from all of these things that Kathy's talking about, for instance, and that we've been talking about today, I think that um, there there just is this sense today that, and it's a kind of a hardened way of thinking about children, that you can kind of form them and mold them the way you need them to be. Going back to that gardening image, instead of watching how these things unfold in children, the kinds of qualities that Kathy's talking about, you know, at, at what age does the child learn to grip a pencil? It's quite different with a three-year-old. They don't grip very well that way. They just sort of have a full-fisted hold on things. If you watch, then around four, five, six, children start to shift their grip. Then they're ready to, to write but they're not really ready if they still are using that fisted grip. Um, they, can, they can crayon and draw that way, but they can't write very well that way. 
There's a lot of these things in, in what Kathy's looking at developmentally that we're just ignoring these days because we have this idea that a child is like a machine in a factory and we can just calibrate it the way we want to calibrate the child. It's incredibly disrespectful to the child and the whole beautiful process of development that's been implanted in every child. Thank you, Joan, and thank you for your call, Kathy. We're going to go to the phones. We have Cynthia on the line. Hi, Hello. C- Hi, Cynthia. Hi, how are you this evening? Oh, fine, thank you. Great, great. Um, I was uh, listening, and I was fun to say that I absolutely agree with um, what's being said as far as um, keeping the physical education classes as well as um, recess uh, incorporated in the, the curriculum because uh, that, I believe, is the only way that we can um, actually develop well-balanced um, people, uh, both uh, the cognitive as well as um, social development, and that's very, very important. Um, and also, again, it relieves a lot of the stress on our young uh, children and um, with regard to starting school and going to school and leaving home and, you know, uh, being in another environment for um, the longer part of the day. Um, so I think that um, what the uh, caller who called a couple calls back uh, said about when she was a kindergarten teacher in the 60s and 70s, and they pretty much uh, used a lot of um, play. Yep. To, to educate the students. But then I, I also wanted to comment on uh, the No Child Left Behind Act with regard to our older uh, students. Um, it seems to do just the opposite uh, of what the title uh, indicates as far as leaving uh, children behind and not really giving them a second chance. Um, at some point, they're issued a, um, a certificate of completion. Um, but with that certificate of completion, they can't later in their life decide to go back and get a GED and go to college. I think that's alarming. I'm very concerned about that, and I wonder what your comments were on Well, you know, I think that this question of a balanced education is one that should be right at the forefront of every discussion, because clearly students need to be met in a variety of ways to have a healthy school experience. They need to be active. And I think that's been underscored by the callers who are concerned about the kids who are asked to sit. Students need to be learning by doing, and they need to be up and moving and learning through movement. And students need to be, of course they need to be engaged academically, and they need to be taught well. And that goes without saying. But they also need to be engaged emotionally. Because when you touch a child's heart, then they want to learn. And the caller who called before and spoke about the music in the kindergarten when a piano was there and the artwork, that all touches a child's heart. And what touches their hearts are stories. That's why we have a story at the end of our show. And in a few minutes, we're going to turn to that story. But what we find in education is that when you teach through stories, and that's the way people have taught for ages, that children just listen. When I worked in the day treatment center, I would come in there and be invited, and I'd come in to tell a story, and sometimes I'd be there only once a year, and I'd walk in and uh, tell my story, and the students would say, you were here last year, you told that story about, and then the child would tell the whole story, and the teacher would look and say, that child doesn't remember anything from school. Hmm. But children remember stories, and they listen incredibly. We can teach in different ways. We just haven't really 
come upon a paradigm to help balance our education. And what's happened is that with the emphasis on academics, it's really become one-sided. And that one-sidedness, unfortunately, has an effect. And Joan, what I wanted to do was to ask you about the high scope study uh, from Ypsilanti. Yeah, I'd be glad to talk about it. And I think this goes back to our first caller, Ronald, when he was talking about, he was specifically talking about black males. But the problem that we're running into now with so many young people, um, you know, who are suffering from learning disorders, attention disorders, ending up in jails, and so on. For me, one of the most telling studies in the world of education was the comparative curriculum study that was done in Ypsilanti, Michigan, back in the late 60s by a group called High Scope. They're still very active. And they followed these children up to the age of 23. And what they had done was to take um, three groups of preschoolers and put them in different forms of education. Two were very experiential, and one was very instructional. And at first, it seemed like they all did well. They, you know, their IQs went up, and they were doing well for a few years. And then they began to see differences. And the two approaches that were experiential came out basically the same, but the instructional one, those children had more behavioral difficulties in school, more learning disabilities. They were more likely to drop out of high school, and they were more likely to go to jail. And the only difference was that they were getting all of this direct instruction as preschoolers. And I would have thought that study alone would have cured us of this tendency to give so much instruction to young children. And that is the primary reading approach that's used in the inner city. That is the approach. You know, I wanted to say a little bit more about storytelling, but we could say the same thing about play. Both storytelling and play are often seen as a fluff Mm -hmm. in an educational program. And um, we could look at play and we could have a show just on the value of play, how it keeps young people's minds creative, how it develops divergent thinking, how it creates problem solvers. It's just a wonderful educational tool. We could say the same about storytelling. And one of the programs that I saw was a program in Baltimore called the Enlivened Literacy Project, which used storytelling, art, and drama to promote writing fluency, vocabulary development, and reading comprehension. It was an excellent program with with verified success, and yet with no child left behind. uh, It wasn't a program that principals would choose for their after-school programs because they wanted the guaranteed improvement in their test scores. Just uh, a shame. We've been speaking with Joan Allman. Joan Allman is the chair of the Alliance for Childhood. She is an educator with years of experience. She is an internationally known educator, and it's just been a pleasure to have her on our show. Jack, it's been great to be here and and great to be with your audience. I love the questions that people brought in their phone calls. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. I want to thank our callers who took the time to call us here at WPFW. Uh, You know, our show is on the third Monday of every month. And so we're not a weekly show. And so we just hope that you mark your calendars. We'll be on again in October on the third Monday and in November. And each month when we have our show we will be looking at an issue on parenting that affects parents in our area and affects the children that you love and care for. So we hope that you'll mark that calendar and tune in each third Monday of the month at 7 o'clock when we have our show. Now, each time that we do have our show, we look at the different questions in parenting. And if you have ideas 
about parenting, please give us a call here at WPFW and ideas for another show. And we certainly would take it into consideration. And we would love to hear from you and to hear your thoughts on our show as well. And now we're going to get ready to go to our story for tonight. Kalanji Lushagun is our storyteller, and he's going to be bringing us a folktale from America. John Henry, an American legend. Story by Zira Jack Keats. A hush settled over the hills. The sky swirled soundlessly round the moon. The river stopped murmuring. The wind stopped whispering. Then the frogs and the owls and the crickets fell silent, all watching and waiting and listening. Then the river roared, the wind whispered and whistled and sang, and John Henry was born, born with a hammer in his hand. Bang, bang, bang rang little John Henry's hammer through the cabin as he crawled about. What's that rascal up to now, his mother chuckled. And before she knew it, he was big enough to help her around the house. As he grew up, he did a man's work with his father. One day, John Henry thought, I'm taller and stronger than anyone around. It's time I went out into the world. He said goodbye to his mother and father, and off he went. He worked on farms and in cotton fields, but all that was too tame. So he got himself a job on a riverboat. One stormy night, the ship plowed through the darkness. Suddenly, the big steel rod that turned the paddle wheel broke. The wheel stopped turning. Smash went the rod through the bottom of the ship. Pump water, shouted the captain. Get to port before we sink. John Henry leaped into the paddle wheel crank. He sized it, pushed and grunted and pulled. Slowly, the giant wheel turned. With all his strength, he kept it turning. Lord Almighty, help us, someone whispered in a long, dark night. As day broke, they sighted shore and pulled into port. A thunderous cheer went up for John Henry. John Henry felt a new excitement in the air. Men were talking of railroads being built from the Atlantic to the Pacific. They're going to lay those tracks over rivers, across prairies and deserts, and right through mountains, and through Indian lands, and stampeded buffalo herds, and bad lands. Goodbye, boys, cried John Henry. I'm going to swing me a hammer on them beautiful new tracks. My hands are just itching to hold a hammer again, John Henry said. He tried one for size and laughed. It sure does feel fine. How he drove those spikes, singing to the clamming of his hammer. The men joined in, their voices singing, hammers ringing, and John Henry's gang was in the lead. As day after day, the tracks moved steadily westward. Rising across their path was a sprawling mountain range. Its snow-capped peaks reached high into the clouds. We'll have to tunnel through, said his friend Little Bill. It'll be awful dangerous. Could be caves in, someone put in. That suits me fine, said John Henry. Me too, added Little Bill. Here's how we'll do it, boys, the foreman called out. A couple of men will drive a hole into the rock. Then the powder men will put dynamite in the hole and explode it. The others caught the loose rock away. We'll do this again and again until we have a tunnel right through this mountain. And it's going to be a great, real big tunnel, boys. Big enough for a giant locomotive pulling one of them long strings of trains. All right, boys, blast away. 
Deep into the mountain they worked. As John Henry's singing echoed through the tunnel, the powder men got ready to blast more rock. They filled a hole with dynamite, put a long fuse and lit it. Run, run, cried the foreman. They all scrambled back, ready to dash clear of the bass. At that instant came a great cracking and rumbling, and the entire tunnel trembled around them. It's a cave-in. We're trapped. There was no place to run. The fuse burned closer to the dynamite. John Henry was nearest to the fuse. He ran to put it out, but tripped and fell. Oh, I'm hurt bad, he groaned. I can't get up. The fuse burned further out of reach. Others rushed toward it, but they were too far away. Suddenly, John Henry remembered. He still had his hammer in his hand. Down came the hammer. Smack! On the burning tip, the fuse was out. Danger passed. Sighs of relief filled the smoky tunnel. Phew! Help me up, boys, mumbled John Henry. Clearing their way through the cave in, the men carried him to safety. Some days later, they heard an unfamiliar clatter. Down the tunnel came a group of men with a strange machine. This is a steam drill. It can drill more holes faster than any six men combined, a new man bragged. Who can beat that? John Henry stepped forward. Try me. He and little John took their workplaces. John Henry gripped his hammer. Little John clutched his steel drill. Check the machine, came an order. A nervous hand fell on the switch. In a dark, both sides waited for the signal to start. A hoarse voice counted. One, two, three. The machine shrieked as it started. John Henry swung his hammer and a crash of steel on steel split the air. Clang! Bang! Clang! The drill got red hot in little Bill's hands. He quickly dropped it and picked up another. Hiss! Whistle! Rattle! Men frantically heaved coal into the hungry, roaring engine and poured water into the steaming boiler. Whoop! Clang! Whoop! Bang! John Henry's hammer whistled as he swung it. Cluck! Cluck! Chatter! rattled the machine. Hour after hour raced by. The machine was ahead. Hand me that 20-pound hammer, little Bill. Harder and faster crashed the hammer. Great chunks of rock fell as John Henry ripped hole after hole into the tunnel wall. The machine rattled and whistled and drilled even faster. Friends doused John Henry and little Bill with cold water to keep them going. Then John Henry took a deep breath, picked up two sledgehammers and sang... Ain't no hammers strike such fire, strike like lightning, Lord, and I don't tire. Hammers like this, Lord, there's never been. I'll keep a swinging them, Lord, till we win. John Henry swung both mighty hammers faster and faster. He moved so fast the men could see only a blur and sparks from his striking hammers. His strokes ran out like great heartbeats. At the other side of the tunnel, the machine shrieked, groaned, and rattled, and drilled. Then all at once it shook and shuddered, wheezed, and stopped. Frantically, men worked to get it going again, but they couldn't. It had collapsed. John Henry's hammering still rang and echoed through the tunnel with a strong and steady beat. Suddenly, there was a great crash. Light streamed into the dark tunnel. John Henry had broken through. Wild cries of joy from the men still holding one of his hammers, John Henry stepped out into the glowing light of a dying day. It was the last step he ever took. Even the great heart of John Henry could not bear the strain of his last task. John Henry died with his hammer in his hand. If you listen to the locomotives roaring through the tunnels and across the land, you'll hear them singing. 
singing of that great steel-driving man, John Henry. Listen, listen, listen. What a wonderful story by Calangelo Chagoon telling that American folk legend of John Henry. You know, there are so many ways to look at parenting, and we each take our work in our own way with our children and just do the best we can. Um, when I talk with friends, I, I can find that their opinions can be so different than mine, and yet I know they're right. And for me, I'm always struck by the, the challenges of parenting. But I've got a good friend who always says, no, it's, it's simple. It's just a simple task. You know, we do simple things with our children, and we love them, and we raise them well. And one of the simple things we do with our children is to put them to bed. And what better way to put them to bed than with a story and a song and a candle and a prayer? And what better thing to do with our children than to have a meal together? The simple things that just enrich a child's life, like play, the wonderfulness of play. Play outdoors and play in the house, child-directed play. We were very fortunate tonight to have Joan Allman with us to speak about the changes that have occurred in kindergartens across our country, how play has been replaced by academic learning, and to express concern that that change will affect our children in years to come. And so just to keep in mind the thoughts that Joan said and to thank her for being our guest, to thank our engineer T for his help uh, tonight, and to invite you all to stay tuned for Monday Night Jazz with Rusty Hassan. And I want to thank you myself for tuning in. And to all my second graders at the Waldorf School, I want to say good night, children, and may the stars watch over you. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through.